Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Luke chapter 23 this morning. Luke 23, we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 43 this morning. Now you may have noticed at this point, uh, being three weeks in, that I have approached Advent just a little bit differently this year than we have done in years past. Uh, so we haven't been going to the typical Advent passages that anticipate the coming of Christ uh, this year. I didn't focus on the hope that the promises of the Messiah's arrival offer. Instead, I focused on the hope that his power and efforts gave to John the Baptist and that hope we should have as well because of his power and his presence. I also, I didn't focus on the peace that his coming promise, but the peace that his power and his presence gave to the disciples as they were weathering that storm that threatened to capsize their boat uh, in the Sea of Galilee. And from that passage, I spoke about how uh, the peace of God is capable of bringing peace to our fears as we struggle both physically, mentally, spiritually, uh, and in many other ways that we do struggle. God can bring us peace through his presence and his power. And this week, I intend uh, to focus on the love of God, but I'm not going to focus on the love of God by looking at the promises of what the Messiah uh, would come and do for his people, but from the reality of love that was put into action with Jesus on the cross. And from that, I, I want to look at two implications of what Jesus did on the cross and what that means for us as we show love the way that love has been shown to us. And so before we dive into this, I want to pray um, because we're getting into a, a, a weighty chapter here. So let's pray together. Father, we're grateful again for your word. We're grateful that it supplies everything that we need for this life, uh, for the work that you have given to us and for our godliness. And I pray that we would have open eyes and open ears and an open heart so that we would be uh, willing and capable of hearing everything that you have for us here today. Lord, it's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. So Luke 23, we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 43. So follow along with me as I read that, please. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered him, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are ju punished justly because we're getting back to what we deserve. We're getting back what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I want you to use your imaginations this morning a little bit. And this is going to be hard to imagine because we're trying to imagine the infinite. Right? I want you to try to imagine the process that brought Jesus to this place. Everything that we just read, think about the process that brought Jesus to that moment in time. So we start off, we have the second member of the Godhead who has enjoyed a perfect, harmonious relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity past. There's never been a time that they weren't. And there has never been a time that they weren't in perfect, harmonious relationship. And this is the reason why I'm saying it's difficult to imagine that. Right? Everything that we imagine comes from time. Everything that we imagine has a starting point and an end point. But this is something that had no beginning and will have no end. And yet this is where all of this, and we just run out of words, it's where it started. Okay. At some point in time, but well, at the point in time, I guess, because time didn't exist before this moment. But at that point in time, when Jesus creates, he becomes the creator and the sustainer of the universe. Colossians 1, 15 and 17 to 17 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. So at some point in time, the point in time, when everything begins to exist, Jesus became the creator and he became the sustainer. And then we, as we read Scripture, we realize that eventually the creatures that He decided to create in His own image rebel against Him with no hope of being restored in that relationship through their own power. And so he, he is sent by God because of their complete weakness, because of our complete inability to do anything about that separation from God on our own, Jesus is sent by the Father to step into human history in order to save us from our sin, to save us from having to endure the Father's wrath for eternity. Jesus steps into our world. Jesus willingly puts on the characteristics of His creation. So again, think about this. We're told in Scripture that as God sits on His throne, there are angels around Him 24-7 crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So there's no more of that. He takes off His crown. He steps into His creation. When He steps into His creation, there's no more holy radiance that emanates from Him. The disciples got to taste a little bit of who Jesus really was at the transfiguration. All of a sudden they see that radiance that, that has not been shining since He stepped into creation. And then it fades away only to come back again when He goes back to heaven. So He has no more angels crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. He has no more radiance emanating from Him. No, He put on human flesh and He took on our weakness. He goes from being omnipresent to having a specific place in time and space. He experiences fatigue. He experiences hunger and thirst. He experiences pain. Now we talked before about His peace settles our 
pain and our fear and it settles physical pain it settles emotional pain and it spirit settles spiritual pain and suddenly out of infinite time now he experiences pain he experiences physical pain emotional pain spiritual pain and then while stepping into this creation he then he lives a perfect life there is no sin in Christ at all he never once gossiped about anyone he never once envied what someone else had he never once lusted after a woman he never once experienced unrighteous anger and he never once failed to worship god the father as he was meant to be worshiped never one time perfection absolute perfection and thanks to that perfection he was sent to the cross by the very people that he had created. They couldn't stand the message that he was proclaiming. The very people that he came to save nailed him to a cross. And as we read the Gospels, we, we see that the road to the cross, it, he made his way through this through political corruption. Right? Pontius Pilate knew he was innocent, and yet he still sent him to his death because it was beneficial for him politically. The road to the cross made its way to this point in time through shame and torment. The Roman soldiers mocked him. They beat him. They spit on him. They plucked out his beard. They whipped him. They placed a crown of thorns on his head. They nailed him to a cross. And while he was up there, it says that they were gambling for his clothes. The only thing that he had in this world, and because it was kind of nice, they decided not to rip it to shreds and give a little bit to each one of them. They decided to gamble for it to see who would get the whole thing. While on the cross, the criminals on the crosses on either side of them were reviling him, it says in verse 39. Now, in Luke's version, we only see one of these criminals throwing out these insults. But in Matthew's gospel, it says there that both men were trying to shame Jesus. We just get to see different versions. The religious leaders, they were mocking him in verse 35. They said, hey, he saved others. right? He healed others. He brought others back from the dead. Why doesn't he do it for himself if he is so special? If he is actually God's Messiah, the chosen one, why can't he do this for himself? They really had no understanding of what Jesus came to do. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 27, we see that the crowd was blaspheming him as well in verse 39. So he's been beaten by his creation. He's been made fun of by his creation. Had his beard plucked out by his creation. Mocked and scorned. Crucified by those that he came to save. And how does Jesus respond in all of this? He responds with love. Right, this is the all-powerful creator of the universe. He could have tapped out of this at any time. Anything, anytime he wanted to say, I'm done with this, I'm not doing it anymore, he could have done so. Right? He could have annihilated every single person that he desired with a thought. That would be all it takes. If he didn't cho choose to go that right, Jesus tells us at, at his arrest when he's speaking to Peter that he could call down more than 12 legions of angels if he chose to. Right? A legion 
Back at this time, a standard legion in Jesus' day was about 6,000 men. And so he's saying that he could call down more than 72,000 angels at any moment if he chose to do so. How long do you think these scoffers, these, these people who are blaspheming, how long do you think that they would last among 72,000 angels coming down to destroy them at the whim of Christ? Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus endures the pain, the physical pain and agony of the cross. Jesus endures the emotional pain and agony of being betrayed by someone that he called a friend. He dealt with emotional agony as he was abandoned by all the other disciples. They ran away so that they wouldn't get caught up in what Jesus was caught up in. He endured emotional pain and agony as he's jeered by this crowd that he came to save. And eventually Jesus is going to endure the spiritual agony and pain of being separated from God the Father for the first time in ever. And what does Jesus say during all of this? In verse 34, Luke quotes Jesus as saying, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Father, don't hold this against them. They're spiritually blind to the reality of what they're doing. Father, don't condemn them for this because it is in their nature to destroy and to cause harm. It's in their nature to rebel against authority. Father, don't destroy them for them for they are only dust. Please forgive them. In this moment, Jesus is setting a standard for love that few of us even care to try to attempt to live up to. He is loving his enemy as he loves himself. Now, he never sinned, but if he did, he would hope to find forgiveness because, and because he can relate to that idea, because he can understand the concept of needing to be forgiven, he desires for his enemies to find forgiveness as well. He's actively showing us the principle that he set before the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 43-45, Jesus said, You've heard, it said, heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All these people persecuting Jesus... And Jesus goes before the Father on their behalf and He asks that they would be forgiven because they're ignorant of the truth. They didn't know the reality of what was happening in this moment. And He did that while He was beaten and bloodied and hanging from two pieces of wood by three nails. He asked for their forgiveness. Would anyone here claim to be good at anything like this? Anybody? Anybody good at forgiving their enemies? Look, there are some people that are. I know some people that are like that. And I was hoping that one of you would raise your hand because I need to have a conversation with you if you are good at this because I am certainly not. This is probably one of my biggest sin struggles that I have in my entire life is this, I, this anger and vengeance to respond not equal to what has happened to me, but above and beyond so that you're not stupid enough to do that again. 
That is, my, that is the first thing that kicks off in my heart every time something happens that is a direct attack on me. So I was, I, seriously, I was hoping that one of you would raise your hand so that I could figure out what's going on in your heart that you can move towards your enemies in forgiveness the way that Jesus, Jesus did. I mean, I have to have long lengthy conversations with my heart and with the Holy Spirit anytime something happens that's sort of aggressive towards me. And sometimes even when it's not aggressive, when it's just a mistake or an accident, I have to have long talks to calm that part of my sin nature down. Right? And it's even worse if something happens to someone that I care about. I have severe Papa Bear issues. Right? If you hurt somebody that I care about, like I mean, it's hard to keep the claws and the fangs where they need to be in situations like Jesus has told us. Right? My, my, my growth in my relationship with Christ has helped me fight this and as I have matured, but I have not matured anywhere near far enough to where I could say that I have any kind of ability to handle this the way that Christ handled it. Now, if this were all that Jesus did on the cross, that would be fairly impressive, right? Don't you think? Praying to, for the Father to forgive those who have done all of this to you, that's fairly impressive. But Jesus also promises something to one of the criminals on the cross whose eyes were eventually opened to the truth of Jesus. He starts off jeering at Christ and his eyes suddenly become open to the truth. Then he looks at the other criminal and says that they're justly being punished because they have actively committed a crime. They were caught, and this is a just punishment for what they have done, but he understands now that Jesus is truly innocent. He understands now that Jesus really is who he says he is. And then he looks to Jesus and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So here we see this criminal acknowledge his sin. He's confessing his sin. We deserve to be here. We have committed the act with which we are being punished for. So he is admitting his sin. He is confessing that sin and he is repenting of that sin before God. We see him acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understands. Jesus is God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he's asking to be acknowledged and remembered when Jesus goes back to his kingdom. And then we see the salvation of the criminal on the cross. Jesus says to this man, truly I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. There was no other Christian acts that he had to go through in order to get this promise. He didn't have to be baptized. He didn't have to you know, go through a new members class. He didn't have to do any of the things that we often associate with Christian faith. He professed his, he confessed his sin and professed his faith. And Jesus says, today, this day, you will be with me in paradise. So not only does Jesus pray forgiveness for all of those who were torturing him, but he offers salvation to any who would repent and believe. And this is what he came to do in his love for his people. He came to seek their forgiveness and he came to offer them salvation. And that's exactly what this man found in the last hours of his life. And he was being tortured in an excruciating agony as well, just as Jesus was. But his eyes were open to the truth. 
and he came to faith in Christ. We have no reason to believe that the other criminal had the same experience. So you see a choice was there to be made. One person chose salvation and the other person chose to die in his rebellion against the Lord. Jesus has shown us a side of love in this whole experience that we often don't consider when we think about love. We think, when we think about love, we often think about romantic love, right? There's somebody that has my affection, at least for a little while, until some of the newness wears off, until some of the, the, the honeymoon period, as they call it. As soon as that goes away, maybe that love starts to fade. So I, fall, I fell in love, and now I have fallen out of love. So we, t- we think about it as though it's something that happens to us. Right? Sometimes there's just love of friends, right? You've got that brotherly love, sisterly love. The ability to love someone that is nice to you, that has similar interests to you. And we're, you're able to hang out. But we also talk about loving nachos, right? Talk about loving a sports team. Talk about loving our car. So when we, when we think about love, you really honestly have to explain, when you say love, what do you mean? Because in the same sentence, you can say, I love my wife, I love my, I, I, I love my kids, I love my friend, and I love my car. And I love, you know, baseball. So what do you mean when you say love? I mean, we've basically taken the word and made it out to mean absolutely nothing. Because it can be applied to everything. Well, Jesus in this is showing what love looks like. And Paul actually defines it for us. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8, Paul says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant. Love is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And if you think about that, what all, all that Paul has done here is explained and expressed the nature and character of God. Right? God defines what love is because God is love. We see that in the book of 1 John. We see that God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God is not boastful. God is not arrogant. God is not rude. God is not self-seeking. God is not irritable. God does not keep a record of wrongs. God finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. God bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. God never ends. And so as we think about love we need to change our mindset because often when we think about love the reason why we love things is because of what it gives us but the biblical definition of love here shows what we give love is about what we do more than about what we get jesus showed love to the very people who murdered him and what did he get abuse Verbal, emotional, spiritual abuse. He got beaten down and yet he expressed love to the very people that were doing that. And he did it for us. 
for those who would consistently walk in our sin nature, often unrepentantly. He did it so that we would have a pathway to the Father. He did it so that there would be a a hope for us and peace for us so that we could be restored in the relationship with the Father so that we would not have to spend eternity facing His wrath. And He has laid that out for us. So listen, you have no hope really of showing love like this outside of a relationship with the Father. It's just not possible. It's not in us to be that selfless all the time. And so I've got a couple of questions for you here today. Number one, have you, like the the thief on the cross, acknowledged your sin? Do you understand the fact that there is, according to Paul, there's nothing good in you that would ever warrant your salvation? There's not enough good that you can possibly do to outweigh the bad that you have already done. And so there is no way to the Father in anything that you could possibly do in and of yourself. You have to rely on what Christ did on the cross. On the cross, because of His perfection, He took on the wrath of God for you and for me so that there could be forgiveness for sins and that He would would take on our sin and offer us His righteousness. And that is the gift that He has offered to everyone in here today. Have you accepted that gift of righteousness? If not, why not? The only thing that I could possibly think is that you are still blinded to the truth that you need that salvation. Maybe you still believe that there's something good in you. Maybe you believe that there's some way that you can earn what God has freely given, what Jesus has already paid for. Are you here today? Do you need to accept salvation? If you have accepted salvation in Christ, do you love like Jesus loves? Would anybody look at you and say, Chris is patient? Chris is kind. Chris does not envy. Chris is not boastful. Chris is not arrogant. Chris is not rude. Chris is not self-seeking. Chris is not irritable. Nobody that knows me would ever admit that. Chris does not keep a record of wrongs. No one that knows me would admit to that. Chris finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Sometimes, but not all the time. Chris bears all things. Chris believes all things. Chris hopes all things. Chris endures all things. Chris never ends? No. Chris comes to the end of himself daily. Chris finds himself struggling to meet this expectation of God every single day. The reality of that and the knowledge of that is what does this to me. When I think about the cross, when I think about what Jesus endured so that I might have a chance of being back in relationship with the Father, it breaks me down all the time. Like, look, my wife calls me Tin Man, okay? I don't do this all the time. There are a few things that do it, and this is one of them, the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, because I have been blessed and cursed with the knowledge of how bad I am. Do you love 
like Christ loves. If not, then we need to be in prayer for one another, with one another, so that we can strive to be the example that Christ set for us on the cross. And he didn't set this example while he was feasting with non-believers, with sinners and tax collectors. He didn't represent this love while he was hanging out with his disciples. He demonstrated this love while he was nailed to a tree. And yet there are times when we experience hardship and struggle and we have zero desire to offer the same type of forgiveness, the same type of love that Jesus offered. And we haven't experienced half of what he went through. We need to understand that we don't have this capability in us. That we need Christ. We have to cling to him as the hardships come, as we struggle with the sin of other people as it comes against us. How are you doing at that today? If this is something that you struggle with as I struggle, I would love to pray for you. I would love to pray with you. And I beg you to please pray for me. This is something that has been an ongoing struggle in my life. I don't know if I'll kick it, you know? I don't know if there will ever be victory but I do want to get better. So I would ask you to pray for me that I would be able to love the way that Jesus loves. Let's pray together. Father, it's my desire to represent you well in the way that I love. It's my desire that every single person here today would love the way that Jesus loves. And we cannot do this on our own. We need you to help us. We need the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to change the way we think, to change the way we act. And I pray that, that, that his power and his presence would be so real to us that it would change some generational sin that we might struggle with. I pray that we would realize that as we are in this battle with certain people. It is not flesh and blood that we battle against, but it's, the, it's a spiritual battle. It's principalities in the air that we are fighting against. And it's not the people that are struggling with their own sin nature. Help us to see the way that you see. Help us to love the way that you love. I ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.